I hate to lose, oh, oh, a little bit hot, sorry. I don't have to say, is this hot? Yeah, okay. I hate to lose all that energy right out the door, but you know how that goes. Wait up, here we go. It was a metropolitan area. Hold me down just a bit. It was a city, perhaps much like our cities today. Prosperous businesses, strong banking, there were great places to eat, new buildings, great neighborhoods, and lots of luxury, and pleasures of all kinds. One could satisfy any appetite in this city. Sexual appetites, there were prostitutes, both male and female. There were pleasures of alcohol and any food you could want. Money, lots of it. There was leisure, there was entertainment, and there was lots of sin, lots of sin. Anything goes, nothing was off limits. Total license, freedom of expression, no restraints whatsoever. It was the city of Sodom. The difference between Sodom and many other cities was that the people of Sodom were blatant about their sin. They carried on their behavior in the open, in the middle of the day, as if everything was perfectly acceptable and normal. And in their opinion, it was. It was normal, not evil. The prophet Isaiah, comparing another city to Sodom, writes, the expression of their faces bears witness against them and they display their sin like Sodom. They are, do not even conceal it. Woe to them. There was nothing they would call evil. They would say, what is evil? You ask that question today and you'll receive a lot of different responses. The prevailing opinions today are that truth is relative. Evil is really what you make of it. It's a mental construct or an irrational judgment. What can people be thinking? Today we're going to look at a description of Sodom. It is so much like our cities in America today. We must ask the questions, is this inevitable? Do we just kind of give up? Do we move away, join a commune in the woods or mountains and get away from it? Or is there an alternative? Is there a better plan? Can we really make a difference? Is there a chance? The conflict between good and evil, right and wrong, has been around since the creation of people. And the Bible tells us that in the last days, this conflict is just going to get worse, and much, much worse. Evil and wickedness will increase, and there will be an obvious demarcation or difference between those who believe the Bible and worship the one true God on the one side, and those who reject biblical truth and their creator God. Matthew 24, 12 to 13 says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. It's Matthew 24, it's talking about end times. Our story today about Sodom is a picture of what we can do in the meantime. Title of today's message is, You Can Make the Difference. You can make the difference. We're gonna read sections of this passage. This, this is a kind of a hard, passage to preach on. We're going to take sections of this and then just talk about it briefly. And then we'll talk about what we can do, what we're called to do to make the difference. I'd like you to turn to Genesis 18. Genesis 18, it's on page 12 in the 
Bible in the rack in front of you, and I'll, I'll be reading some passages and then just talking about each one briefly. Genesis 18, starting with verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked downward toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The Lord, pre-incarnate Jesus, we believe, comes to Abraham accompanied by two angels. They show up one day. Previously in chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old, God confirms his covenant and we talked last, time, last week, Pastor Josh talked about the renewal of the covenant and changing of the name from Abram to Abraham. And so we get to this point today, the Lord reveals to Abraham what he's about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then two angels leave them and go down to Sodom where the evil is rampant. And there's an interesting dialogue that occurs between Abraham and God. And let's read in 18 starting with verse 22. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be from it for you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will you not judge all of the earth and do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again and said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? God said, if I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? And he said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. In this passage, Abraham begins what appears to be a negotiation. It's a negotiation. He starts with 50 righteous. What if there are 50 righteous? Would you spare the city of Sodom? And God says, if there are 50 righteous, I will do that. And knowing that his estimate is probably too high, he bargains with God until he gets down to 10. I don't know why he stopped at 10, but he stopped at 10. But he probably knows that that too would be a stretch. 10 righteous. 
And the next scene, we get to chapter 19. The two angels arrive in Sodom. It says, they arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside your servants to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men of every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called a lot. Where are the men you came, that came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. And he said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien. Now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out, pulled Lot back into the house, shut the door, then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. Wow. The two angels arrive. Lot greets them, invites them for dinner and to spend the night. And then the men of the town, young and old, surround Lot's house, demanding he bring them out so they can engage in a homosexual orgy. Open, public, horrific sin. Lot is horrified. He actually offers his two virgin daughters instead, which is a statement of the great lengths to which a host was expected to protect guests in their own house. Lot says, don't do this wicked thing. And the men of Sodom insist and persist. The angels rescue Lot by pulling him into the house, blinds the eyes of men until they finally give up and leave. And then the angels warn Lot and his family to leave Sodom immediately. He says, because we are going to destroy this place, the outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Evidently, there were not 10 righteous people in Sodom. Perhaps only four, likely only one. The men pledged to be married to Lot's daughters, think it's a joke, it doesn't make sense. Lot hesitates, the angels grab Lot and his wife, two daughters' hands, pull them out of the city. All four escape. Lot's wife, we read, looks back and becomes a pillar of salt. And Lot with his two daughter, daughters escapes. And then, following the escape of these three, God totally destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. The moral outcry was so great that God destroyed every living thing. One other time in history that happened, through a flood. This time, likely through volcanic eruption. Archaeological digs have found two cities at this location which seem to be a, have been destroyed by some catastrophe. There's a lot of speculation about what actually happened. There were questions about what kind of a natural disaster could destroy two cities like this? Well, then came Mount St. Helens in Washington. I was in Washington shortly after Mount St. Helens erupted. It was unbelievable, the devastation of Mount St. Helens. When Judy and I 
took a trip and we were in Italy, we stopped to look at Mount Vesuvius in the city of Pompeii in Italy. Maybe you've been there and seen that. You've seen pictures. Total devastation, a volcanic eruption that just destroyed an entire area. Abraham now stands overlooking the destroyed cities, perhaps wondering what might have been done to prevent or avert this tragedy. Now this, this incredible account is not only confirmed by archeology, span but the prophets talked about it, Jesus talked about it, the apostles wrote about it. And it demonstrates the great depths to which Sodom and Gomorrah had sunk, the immorality, the filth, in the middle of this great wealth and abundance, this, this amazing two cities. There are a lot of parallels to our cities or communities today in America. Great wealth, great abundance, and great sin. And the question is, because we all, we all say, what is it that we can do about it? What, what, what can we do? Is there anything that we can do to stop this? Or do we need to just run and escape? I don't know if you've ever asked that. You've been in a city, and you look at all that's happening, different area, wherever it is, and say, I think I just want to go someplace safe, someplace where there isn't all this sin and unrighteousness. Well, you know what? That's not God's plan. That's not God. Can we make a difference? Ten righteous people in Sodom would have saved the entire city. Just ten. Ten. And I propose you can make a difference. You can make a difference. Four decisions to make a difference in our city. Four, four decisions we're going to talk about today. First decision is to, number one, be aware. Call sin, sin. Be aware. Call sin, sin. We must be aware of our sins and call them for what they are. We don't like the word sin. You know, that's kind of an old-fashioned word. Sin is anything against God's law, against his character, whatever. A violation of God's character. And, and if we're going to find a solution to sin, we have to identify it. If we don't identify the problem, we can't define the issue that needs to be resolved. I'll give you a couple of examples. For eight years, our government refused to identify a national security threat. They didn't want to name the threat. And it's, it's not that this represented an entire people group, but there were people in the world that were called radical Islamic terrorists. We didn't want to name them that. So we just kind of ignored that. You, you can't Solve a problem until you name the problem. One of our friends in Congress from Minnesota described 9-11 as some people did something. Some people did something. We need to identify the threat. We could say there's a coronavirus, a corona, um, coronavirus flu that's, that's crack, cracked open and it's all over the world. We can say some people in China got sick. That doesn't identify the problem. Some people in China got sick. We have to identify the issue, identify the problem. And the problem in America today is sin. It's sin. And, and the issue is sin permeates the whole nation. It, it permeates us. It's part of our nature. That's, that's why Jesus came. But we have to identify the problem, call it what it is, so that we can find solution to that. It's not very popular. It's not very politically correct. In fact, depending on the sin we're talking about, you can be accused of hate speech because you're talking about sin. You know, and you know what? I didn't say we are sinners. God said it. Jesus said it. The Bible says we're sinners. 
That's why Jesus came. That's why we celebrate a communion today, because his blood delivered us from that. That's the answer to the issue of sin. What were some of Sodom's sins? Sodom's sins. Materialism was one of them. Ezekiel 16, 49 to 50 says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things. Their sin was against God. See, something about materialism brings arrogance, pride, and we get overfed and unconcerned. No concern for the needy. Hedonism, or just pleasure-seeking. And we don't know anything about that in America today. Pleasure-seeking, what is that? And then there was blatant over-wickedness. Blatant over-wickedness. Jeremiah 23 talks in comparison of Judah. It says, and among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his wickedness. They are like Sodom to me, the people of Jerusalem like Gomorrah. Then there are other things like the reversal of right and wrong. There's pride and arrogance. And there are all these things now, I don't, I don't like talking about all the sins of America because it gets depressing, okay? It, but these are the sins of Sodom. But we've also got to look at, if we're gonna understand what we need to do is call sin, sin, and be aware of America's sins. We have, we have materialism, worshiping the gods of money and possessions, immorality, the free love of the 60s. Many of you grew up in the 60s. The normalization and mainstreaming of immorality. Sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, the normalization of living together, sleeping together, not married. All the romantic comedies, and, and you know this, you watch, watch TV, you see sitcoms on TV, you watch programs, you go to movies, whatever it is. Almost all of them out of Hollywood assume that dating couples are living together and sleeping together. Why do we think so little of this immoral behavior? Because it's been normalized. And you get brainwashed, so it's just accepted. And we wonder why the millennial generation just, just takes this at face value, because it's been brain, they've been brainwashed for so long. We've, we've dealt with that for years. Today, well over 50% of all couples in America are unmarried and living together. Call sin, sin. Now, when we talk about sin, most of the time we like to think about other, other people's sin. <laughs> and the ch good church people, you know, we, we, we don't have all these other sins, and so we think about those terrible people out there, and we don't, we don't stop to think that maybe there's something in our life that we may need to deal with, okay? And I, I remember my mother, godly woman, she was a pastor's wife, an incredible woman. Her, her, her biggest fear, I think, was pride, it's really easy to be prideful in church, you know. We're, we're good Christian folks and we're prideful. And my mom was so, so afraid of that that she would say to me, um, she'd say, I'm so proud of you, but, but in a good way. <laughs> and I say, what does that mean? That means she didn't want to cross that line into sin of pride, but she wanted to be proud, of, you know, it's just kind of this. And there are these subtle sins in the church that we, we just hold to. And it's important that we, we don't point the finger at those people out there. We're not to judge people out there. Judgment starts in the house of God. And say, God, what is it in me? What kind of sin in me? And they're subtle, they're subtle things. Hidden sins. When we are serving a church in, in Seattle, I, I got a phone call, I was in the office one day and I got a phone call from a guy and he said, uh, can I come and talk to you, I have a question. 
I said, sure. So he came by. This gentleman came in, sat down in my office, and he said, uh, I want to know what does the Bible say, okay? What does the Bible say about gymnosophy? Gymnosophy. Now, I'd never heard the word before. And, of course, I analyze and parse words for a living and, and make sermons out of it and do all kinds of stuff like that. I didn't know what gymnosophy meant, but I heard the word gym, okay? Now, this guy wasn't a beast, but he wasn't actually like Rocky Balboa either, okay? And I thought, maybe gymnosophy is a temptation to go to the gym? I don't know. Maybe it's the fear of the gym. Maybe he's supposed to go to the gym and he resists. So I thought, maybe if I need to go to the gym and I say, no, I'm committing gymnosophy? I, I didn't know. Had no idea what it meant. And now, when you don't know the meaning of the word, you ask. If you're stupid, you say, what does that mean? If you're smart, you say, define that word for me. So I said, what does that mean? <laughs> and he told me what it meant. It meant nudism. I said, really? He liked to run around his house and in his backyard naked. Private backyard, I'm assuming. And he wanted to know what the Bible said about it. Obviously not in a Wisconsin winter, but that's different. <laughs> He had two preteen kids at home. But he wanted to know what the Bible said about it. Well, the word gymnosophy doesn't appear in the Bible. I'm, I'm going, what, what in the world? You know, I took seminary. I got two master's degrees. I started working doctorate. I did all that stuff. And I have no idea what this guy's talking about. But I, so I did what every smart, brilliant biblical scholar would say. I'll get back to you. <laughs> I said, I'll get back to you. See, I, I have this friend who's a, who's a, uh, graduated from Cambridge with his PhD in theology, taught theology. He worked for the NSA. I mean, he's just this brilliant guy, photographic memory. And you can ask him a question about any book he's read, and he'll tell you the page. I mean, it's just, he's incredible. Incredible man of God and brilliant scholar. So his name is Mark Mueller. So I told this guy, I'll get back to you. And I pick up the phone, I say, dial Mark. I got to talk to Mark. So I asked Mark, I said, do you know anything about gymnosophy? Oh, yeah, he gave me the full definition of what it was. And I'm going, where do you learn this stuff? And then I said, that I had a guy that wanted to talk about, is this biblical? Is it okay if in the privacy of my home I do whatever? And so he gave me the, you know, a lot of the background, some scripture passage just off the top of his head about modesty and all the kinds of things. And he gave me an answer about this particular issue. So, so he could come back. Now, this guy actually played congas sometimes on our worship team. So you can imagine all the things that were in my mind, wondering what, what's going on in his mind. So anyway, we got that answer. But his, your sin may not be gymnosophy. That may not be your thing, okay? This guy it was, okay? We all have sins that affect us. Sins that are besetting to us. Now the major issue in Sodom and Gomorrah and it's a major issue in America today is homosexuality. Homosexuality, blatant, open, normalized. They, they have gay pride, gay pride. And I always ask, when did sin become something to be proud of? Now, I've said this before. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We all have sin orientation, okay? We all have sin orientation. We're all sinners. Jesus came to deliver us from sin. And so, and there's no sin 
that's not forgivable, there's no sin that in God's eyes cannot be forgiven. Okay? Sin orientation. We all need to be delivered. And some, every one of us has a different sin. But what's happened when it came to this, comes to homosexuality, they created the word probably about 20 years ago, the phrase or the construct sexual orientation. Because if it's inbred in me, it's part of my sexual orientation, then it's, it's who I am, and I, I, I'm not guilty. I'm just acting out who I am. And that's, that's a misconstruct of what there really is. It's basically taking one sin, one particular sin, homosexual behavior, normalizing it and justifying it and making it okay. Okay, you can do that with any one of those sins. Say, I have a, I have a, a tendency to steal, or I have a tendency to gossip, I have a tendency to, to pride, and so I'm just gonna call that my orientation. So we only take one sin, homosexual behavior, and we say that's sexual orientation, and it's okay. And I will, I will say there is no such thing as sexual orientation. There's only gender, male and female. There's no such thing as sexual orientation. Only gender, male and female. This was a recent construct to justify sinful behavior by saying, I'm made that way. And we all have sin orientation. We all have that, okay? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why we shouldn't be pointing fingers and saying, I'm better than you, or I have never done that, or I don't do this. We all deal with our own sin before God. But God did not create us as homosexuals. He created us as heterosexuals. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. He, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. God created male and female. And nature itself teaches us what is normal and healthy and good. Sex was not created for a pleasure. It was created to reproduce to reproduce. It's not just for pleasure. We've, we've twisted that whole thing around. And as I said before, God made it good. God made it fun. If, it, if not, when our kids turned two, we'd never have another kid. God made and blessed the sexual union, man and woman, male and female. Very important that we understand that. And of course, today we see all kinds of twisted versions of that. In, on Breakpoint on January 30th, 2020, it's talking about m movie releases that, that now have obvious, especially Disney Disney movies, have obvious LGBT characters. They put them in all things. A recent installment of Star Wars had a Marvel Studios owned by Disney, included a gay character, and now they're in production of the first ever transgender superhero. Now, one, one writer says Disney and other studios aren't making movies about LGBT. They're capitulating to character quotas, virtue signaling to the loud and influential LGBT lobby in order to keep protests down and ticket sales up. You can see what they're doing. Disney is not so much pushing a cultural agenda as they're bowing to it. And Brett Kunkel said in his book, A Practical Guide to Culture, ideas are often most powerful, not where they are loudest, but where they are made to appear 
normal. Normalizing, just normalizing all of these things. And that's where this country has gone, and that's what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with. J.K. Rowling, who's the author of Harry Potter, tweeted her support for a researcher in the UK who was fired from her job for saying that male and female are biological realities. She lost her job. And the writer, J.K. Rowling, the writer of Harry Potter, actually good, to, good for her, said, no, you guys are messed up. God made us, created us, male and female. Mankind chooses to sin and go against God's design. Mankind perverted the original design and creation. And we look at what happened here in Sodom and Gomorrah. Homosexuality was the ultimate end of the rejection of God in Sodom. Its expression, it was just unbelievable. And we've seen this over the last 30 years. You, you've watched it, you've seen it happen. It started different parts of the country and it grew. And, and uh, when we pastored in Seattle, we were in the center of the, of the lesbian movement in Seattle on the West Coast. That's where it was. Seen it firsthand, we have seen it firsthand. And you throw your hands up and say, what, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Now does God, does God hate people that are sinners? No, because he'd hate us, because we're all sinners. He loves us, he hates sin, because he knows that sin is destructive. And we must too have that same attitude towards sin that God does. We, we value truth so much and we value righteousness so much that we are passionate about truth and righteousness. I just read a verse this morning. My devotion's in Psalm 119. It says, long ago, no, where is it? Okay, he says, because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. Because your precepts are right, I hate every wrong path. Does that mean he hates people? No, he hates misinformation. He hates wrong paths. He hates sin. Then we have the reversal of right and wrong, which is very common. We've seen that turning upside down. Never so obvious as with abortion. 61 million babies aborted and counting. We can't interfere with a woman's health care. What about baby's health? Governor Northam of Virginia proposing to kill the baby after it's born. In the state of California, and this is very relevant, California state passed a law mandating that all health insurance policies, okay, this is very close to our hearts, all health insurance policies must carry coverage for birth control, including abortifacients and cover abortions. They passed that law in the state of California. In other words, if you're part of a health care plan, it doesn't matter if you're uh, you're a Catholic hospital, or you're a university, or you're a church, or whatever, you have health care, you have to cover abortions. Now, Skyline Wesleyan Church, Skyline Wesleyan Church, that's one of our banner churches on the West Coast, in San Diego, who's led by Jim Garlow, was one of only three churches in the entire state, three churches in the entire state that was willing to sue on the behalf of faith institutions, three churches. We're talking about 10 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. There were three churches willing to stick their neck out on this issue. 
And the courts eventually overturned the mandate. They're not giving up. They're not giving up. It's going to come back. And we know that the, there was an issue on the ballot or, or voted on by the, by the city council here to outlaw, outlaw counseling, conversion therapy, prohibition. That if you counseled somebody that was confused about their gender, if you were a paid counselor, you're breaking the law. If you try to encourage them to examine or even open the door to the fact that maybe you should return to your biology. In other words, if somebody comes in, they're confused, unless you counsel them to be transgender and to cross, be sterilized and change your gender, you break, you're breaking the law right now in this city. And there were three churches willing to take issue with that. Three, only three. We are one of them. I brought it to my board and they said immediately, we're gonna fight it. Now, they, have, they haven't taken it up in this city yet because there are other, other places where Alliance Defending Freedom is fighting it and it, they're, they're better suited for court cases and precedents, et cetera. So it's being taken up. Okay, we're kind of on the back burner right now, but that has been taken up in other places in the country where they're fighting that stuff. How do you handle that stuff? Are we willing to stick our neck out and get, get involved? Be aware, we must call sin, sin. How can we make a difference? Secondly, be, be warned, be warned. In Luke 17, Luke 17, 26, it says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given a marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Be warned, in the last days, some point in time, this will be the reality. Don't be surprised. Now he said separate yourselves or remove yourselves from Sin. Now, there are typically three responses, very quickly, three responses to God's warning. And we, we find these three here. We've been warned. We've been, we see all this stuff. The first one is denial. Denial. Lot's sons-in-law thought he was joking. They made light of it. How many times do we live in denial about the sin around us? We kind of want to bury our heads in the sand. Now, God doesn't say worry about this. Okay? Say, how can I not? Look at the news. Don't worry about this. He says, be warned and be aware. Don't live in fear. But don't live in denial either. Does God want us to move away from Sin City? No. He needs at least 10 righteous. He needs at least 10 righteous. That's you. Okay? He needs us in the middle. Have there been 10 righteous, Sodom and Gomorrah probably still be around today. But God does want us to distance ourselves from sin. I don't know how many of you two weeks ago watched the Super Bowl and watched the Super Bowl halftime show. It was disgusting, it was sexual, it was sensual, it was demonic. They had stripper poles, simulated sex acts, ropes of bondage, and children in cages. The entertainment industry is filled with pedophilia, sex trafficking, and misogyny, and it was on full display. We don't, we don't know a lot of these things. Our, our daughters, 
spent 10 and 12 years down in, in Southern California, Los Angeles, in the entertainment industry, working within that context, dealing with all those kinds of issues. They see this stuff and they see a lot more than we do because we're not aware. But they'll tell you, this is what it's like. This is what, these are the key influencers of our children today, right in front of us. What do we do? What do we do? Call sin, sin. God warns. The first response is denial. We have to understand what it is. The second one is hesitation. A lot hesitated when given God's warning. When God warns us about sins and his consequences, don't hesitate. Be decisive. Now, the two biggest causes of Christians hesitating when we get warnings are, number one, the undermining of God's word by deconstructing it. It's a huge topic. It's, did God really say? It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when, when Satan came up and tempted Eve and said, did God really say? Questioning the inerrancy of Scripture. Human reason standing over the Word of God. We don't have time to go into that. Rationalism. And then normalization of, of sin. The third reaction to the warning is separation. By separation, I don't mean live, leaving the city and joining a commune. Separation from sin. Not separation from people, sinners, but separation from sin. How can we make a difference? Number three, be active. Be active. First one is prayer. What did Abraham do? He interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. He was bold and persistent. And he, it was like he was praying to God, are there 50 righteous, 40, 45, whatever. He prayed to God, desperately seeking God's forgiveness and favor. He interceded. There were not 10 righteous in Sodom. That didn't deter him from praying. Prayer is the battle in the heavenlies. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against criminal gangs and pimps and drug dealers and sex traffickers, governmental leaders who promote liberal laws on abortion, same-sex marriage, and all that other stuff. Our battle is not against people who are enslaved by their sin. Satan is the enemy. We are here to rescue people from the domain of darkness. Pray and also be active. Be active. Get involved. Be informed. Vote. Need to vote. There's, there's, an, there's an election on Tuesday. We're going to try to keep you informed. We're not telling you who to vote for, but there's an obvious choice of liberal conservative choice in the Supreme Court election that's happening this Tuesday. Go vote. Go vote. Everybody ought to vote. It's a statewide election, and it's in, it's in the program. I took the wording directly off the website, okay? I didn't endorse anybody, which I can, but basically, you just read it, and you can come to your conclusions. We have to be engaged in the physical realm. And number four, be righteous, be righteous. Second Corinthians 5, 17 and 19 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We celebrated that reconciliation today in communion. Our righteousness is a gift from God. We don't earn it. There's nothing we can do to earn a right relationship with God. It's received by repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. And then... We become new creations. We're changed from the inside out. Then we're righteous. And the amazing 
fact about God is even a very small number of innocent or righteous persons are more important to him than the majority of wicked, rebellious people. See, we find many are called, few are chosen. Brought as a way to destruction, narrow way, few find it. But Jesus took on the sin of the whole world. He died for everybody's sin, not just us, not just Wesleyans, not just church folk, not just Americans, the entire world. God reconciled us to him through Jesus. And then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He will not count our sins against us or anyone else that truly repents. We have that message of reconciliation. And so he's calling on us, calling on us as reconciled believers that have a relationship open to him to be righteous, to be righteous in right relationship. You can make the difference. Okay? You look at all the stuff around. You, you can make the difference in America and Eau Claire in your neighborhood. Be aware, be warned, be active, and be righteous. You can make the difference. You may be the difference. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you got us through this very difficult chapter, these two chapters, and I just pray, God, that you, by your grace, would help us to make the difference. We know, God, that it's by your Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit that we can make the difference. And I pray, God, that we won't be proud or arrogant or feel like we somehow are better than anybody else, that we would acknowledge our sin and our, our issues. And as we've been reconciled to you and given the message of reconciliation, I pray, God, that you would use us to bring people to Jesus. I pray that we will be the difference. There are far more than 10 here. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us a vision for our ministry. In Jesus' name, amen.